Lord Jesus, you are the light of the world. Illumine our hearts and our minds as your word is read and proclaimed this morning, that we may hear your voice and be changed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord from Jonah, the first chapter, verses 4 through 16. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church. Great to see all of you here this morning. I'm Corey. I'm the lead pastor here at 3rd, and just so grateful to see all of you guys here together this morning. If you were with us last week, you'll know that we started a new uh, six-week sermon series this fall on one of my favorite books, the book of Jonah, the book of Jonah. And we, we got straight last week what this book is not about and what it, it is about. It is not about the what? It is not about the whale. Get that out of your head. It is about what? Grace. Thank you, Quar. Grace. You're paying attention. It is about grace. And what we've been seeing last week is already that grace, if it is truly grace, is disruptive. Grace pursues. Grace challenges. Grace chases. Grace overturns. Grace always receives us as we are, but never leaves us as we are. It always challenges, changes, transforms. Grace disrupts. Now, last week, what we saw is that as Jonah ran from God and God threw this storm upon him, that what looked like vengeance was actually love. So that was our first lesson, is that grace often disrupts our lives in order to keep us close to God and keep us dependent on him. Now, 
this week, we are turning to this next part of chapter one. And what we're seeing here is another big theme in the book of Jonah, and that is how grace disrupts our relationship with our neighbors. This is another big theme in the book of Jonah that God deeply cares about how his people relate to their neighbor, especially their neighbors who are very different from themselves. This is a really important uh, theme for us today as Americans living in our society in the 21st century. You know, I don't think anybody needs to really know what is most true, and that is that we live in one of the most culturally and racially and religiously and socially diverse societies that the world has ever known, and yet at the same time, we are increasingly living in one of the most polarized and volatile and violent societies in history. It is as if people do not even know how to love, let alone even relate to someone who is profoundly different from ourselves. And what's amazing is that this ancient book has something very powerful to say about that, that grace is meant to change and disrupt the way that we love our neighbors and even the way that we treat our enemies, okay? So if you like taking notes or if you like a dominant thought, here it is for today. Grace disrupts the way you love your neighbor, okay? You got that, family? Grace disrupts the way you love your neighbor. So we're going to ask three questions about this great text. First of all, we're going to ask, who is your neighbor? Who is the neighbor that you're called to love? Second, why do we have such a hard time loving our neighbor? Why? And then third is how? How can we get the power to love the neighbor in the faithful way that God calls us? Okay, so who is our neighbor? Why do we have such a hard time? And how do we do it? So first, let's ask the first question. Who is the neighbor that we are called to love? So let's do a story recap, okay? So God comes to Jonah, gives him a command to go to his enemies, the people of Assyria who live in Nineveh, and give them this message. Jonah says no. He turns around, runs the other way. God hunts him down, throws this storm upon him, and clearly it is a ferocious storm such that these sailors who probably have seen scores of storms in their day uh, have never seen anything like this. And so they are terrified, but our friend Jonah, where is he? He has gone below deck where he is deeply asleep, oblivious from the world. Now, verse six is great. Look with me at the text. Verse six, the captain goes to him to arouse him. Now, I'm going to read. I love the King James. If you ever had a chance, read the whole King James uh, version of this story. It's fantastic. And I love what the captain says in verse 6. He says, what meanest thou, O sleeper? Don't you love that? What meanest thou, O sleeper? You should say that to your kids when you're trying to wake them up in the morning. Arise, call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us and we perish not. What meanest thou, O sleeper? Let me, let me translate that. What are you doing down here? Do you not see what is happening? How could you be down here absorbed in your own problems and consumed with your own worries? Uh, they say you're a man of faith. Can you not bring your little private faith to bear on this crisis situation that we're living in? Don't you see that we're dying up here? What meanest thou, O sleeper? You know, I found a, um, a really interesting book of sermons on Jonah this week, by, written by a 19th century Scottish pastor. I love Scottish preachers. They're the best. And uh, I, I found a 19th century Scottish preacher named Hugh Martin. And he wrote a sermon on this text. And the name of the sermon, get this, the name of the sermon was The World Rebuking the Church. Whew. 
The world rebuking the church. This is what Martin says. He says, the captain represents the lost and broken world is rebuking Jonah, who is representing the people of God. Martin said this story was written, meant to be, and actually modern scholars agree, it was meant to be a serious rebuke to the people of God and one that God's people need to continue to hear throughout history. This is what Martin said. The world may rightly rebuke any church that sleeps in sweet oblivion to the problems and pains of the world around them. The world may rightly rebuke any church that sleeps. Now, that kind of hurt when I read it, and I, you know, I was thinking about this a little bit, and unfortunately, it is often true. You know, that churches, when they're not careful, do drift into self-absorption and self-concern. Churches do tend to become concerned about their own problems and their own issues. Uh, we focus on our own success and our own growth, and we squabble about our own pet issues, you know, whether doctrinal or social or personal. We fret over decisions about leadership or about the carpet color, about what color we're going to paint the nursery or about, you know, what program we're going to enact. And, and often the church can be overly absorbed and occupied with the concerns of only the people in the church. We can't see beyond ourselves. And Martin says to that, for the church like that, the world has the right to rebuke that kind of church. This is true for us personally, too. You know, many of us, like Jonah, are consumed with our own overwhelming problems. I know that you have overwhelming problems. I do, too, sometimes. And many of us get so consumed with our personal struggles and so wrapped up with our own hurt and pain that we're not able to see beyond our own problems. And we're asleep below deck. And meanwhile, Martin says, the world is coming to us, and they're saying, get up! What meanest thou, O sleeper? We're, we're dying out here. Can't you, can't you do something? The families are breaking apart. People are in crisis. The, 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 the Virginia foster system is bursting at a scene. Thousands of kids with no families to place them. Uh, uh, a global and national refugee crisis. Injustice, violence, poverty. People living and dying without hope. Where are thou, O sleeper? And we're often asleep below deck, oblivious. You know, this, this actually came real personal to me a few years ago. I have a friend who's a professor at VCU, and um, he's, teach, he was, he's in the religion and philosophy department, and he was a teaching a, a, an intro class to undergrads on world religions. And he wanted to have an actual Christian talk about Christianity. Um, and so he invited me, and they had never seen uh, an actual Christian before. And so, um, you know, I came in, and I was supposed to talk for like 30 or 40 minutes about the meaning of Christianity. Whoo, okay, meaning of Christianity, 101, religion class, VCU. So hundreds of kids in this lecture hall, um, and I get up, and I, and I talk, and, um, and then comes the Q&A time. Whoo, <laughs> Q&A. And that was rough, man. It was rough. And then this one young woman, she raises her hand. And this was the, really the question I remember. She raised her hand and she said, it wasn't so much a question, more like a statement. She said, uh, I don't have a problem with Jesus Christ. My problem is with Christians. And this is what she said. I wrote it down. She said, my problem with Christians is that they don't care. They don't care about genocide. They don't care about poverty. They don't care about the state of our planet. They don't care about the problems in the world. They only care about themselves, their own political agendas, and getting into heaven when they die. What do you say about that, preacher? Okay. Uh, I will not tell you what I said, because I think I answered quite poorly. Um, but you know what? And obviously she was speaking with a lot of passion and, and great exaggeration. I mean, there are 
There are many, many ways that Christians throughout the ages have brought great help and healing to the world. And yet, at that moment, she was the sea captain for me. You know, she was saying, please do something. You know, you say you worship the God of heaven and earth and bring your faith to bear on the situation that we find ourselves in in this world. We're dying out here. What meanest thou, O sleeper? And so that's our first lesson, and it's an important one to, for us to hear. And you know, I, there's, a, there's a balance here. I know that some of you are dealing with really overwhelming struggles right now, and it's really hard to kind of see beyond your own kitchen sometimes because of the stuff that's going on in your, in your own life. And I want you to know that God is here for you, and he is your helper, and he is your healer. And he does not want you to ignore the problems and the pains in your own life. But I want you to hear this. If you are a believer, he comes to aid you so that you can get up and then walk out and walk into the world that you might take that same aid and help and hope that he's given you that you might make it known to others. And sometimes it actually takes getting out of yourself and getting up out of your sleep and getting into the world to be for others, to actually become a pathway to your own healing as it was for Jonah. So that's our first lesson here. The world is right to reject a church that sleeps in sweet oblivion. And sometimes it takes an unbelieving captain to wake us up. So let's go back to our question, church, okay? Who is the neighbor we're called to love? Well, the answer is everybody in your boat. Everybody. The people that you hate, the people you think are your enemies, your neighbor down the street. Think about your workplace. Think about your school. Think about your retirement home. Think about your university. Uh, kids, think about your school classroom. Um, think about the city. Think about Metro Richmond. You know, we are in the same boat with a lot of people who aren't like us and who don't share our convictions and who are of a different faith background and a different religion, different background. And yet, the storm that threatens one threatens the whole, the whole boat. And so if crime is plaguing Metro Richmond or poor health or the loss of jobs or a broken economic system or failing schools, guess what? We're all in the same boat. If your neighbor down the street is struggling, is dying, is hopeless. Guess what? We're all in the same boat. And throughout the story, Jonah is running because he wants to serve only the interests of fellow believers. God is for me and for us. But God keeps showing him again and again that he is the God of all people. He is God for them. Jonah, he says, you're here for them. You're the only person in this situation who knows the true God. And you have the power to make a difference in the life of the world because you have the life of God within you. And so, church, listen, who's in your boat? What problems, pains, sorrows, and struggles are the people in your boat facing? Our faith is never just for ourselves. It's never for our own possession. The church is the only society in the history of the world that exists for those who are not members of it. And so what does God say? He says he has you where you are for the sake of the others in your boat. So will you wake up, O oh sleeper? So that's our first question. Who is the neighbor we're called to love? Everyone in your boat. But let's look at the second question. Why do we often fail to love our neighbor? Why is Jonah so unable to love? Why is he so oblivious to the concerns of the other men in the boat? Well, is it just that Jonah's a jerk? Well, yeah. <laughs> but he's got a deeper problem. It's a deeper problem with his identity that he is, I think, plagued with this cultural and religious superiority that prevents him from loving the men who are really different than he is. This book uh, is just brimming with exquisite irony. It's so beautiful. Uh, why does Jonah run? He runs because he hates the heathen pagans. Where does he end up? In a boat surrounded by heathen pagans. 
It's so funny. And then the irony even deepens because not only does he find himself surrounded by pagans, but then these sailors who do not know the living God end up being much better men than Jonah is himself. Have you noticed that in this story? So Jonah is absorbed with his own problems, whereas sailors are seeking the common good of everybody in the boat. Uh, Jonah is detached from his God, failing to engage. The sailors are crying out to their gods. Uh, Jonah has no concern for anyone but himself. The sailors show deep concern, even right up to the very end, for Jonah. And so this is the first clue that something is deeply wrong with this prophet. He is full of religion, and yet he is full of self-righteousness and pride and hatred and even bigotry. What is wrong with this guy? Well, big clue in verses eight and nine. Will you look with me in the text, verses eight and nine? The sailors cast lots, which was a common practice back then to discern the, the mind of the gods. And the true God overrules the lots and exposes Jonah. And so they ask him, verse eight, who is making all this trouble for us? In other words, who is your God? Why is he doing this to us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? These, notice, these are all identity questions, right? He's asking, who is your God, your mission, your people? And look how Jonah answers. Verse nine, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now, <laughs> leaving aside the fact that his answer seems incredibly hollow, given the fact that he is running from the God that he is claiming to worship, his answer is very interesting, isn't it? Look carefully at it. The very first question the sailors ask was about his God. The very first answer that Jonah gives is about what? His ethnicity, his culture, his race. I had never noticed this before, but you know, the economy of words is so small in this book, no word is wasted. And so the commentators I read made a really big deal about this. In fact, Daniel Timmer, who is a professor at RTS, writes this, Jonah's statement that he is a Hebrew distinguishes him ethnically from everyone else on board. Since Jonah identifies himself first ethnically, then religiously, we may infer that his ethnicity is foremost in his self-identity. Let me, let me unpack that. I know that's a little complicated. What sociologists tell us, bear with me, church, okay? What sociologists tell us is that every person's identity is made up by a series of rings, you know, concentric circles. And the closer something is to the core and the way that you think about yourself and your self-concept, your, your, your understanding of who you are, the more important it is to your self-understanding and the more it will shape the way that you interact with other people in the world. Does that make sense? And so Jonah, the first thing he says is, I am a Hebrew. And what's clear is that this is at the very core of his awareness of who he is. It's even more core than who he is as a worshiper of the Lord. And this explains so much, doesn't it? That Jonah's relationship with God is not as central to his identity as his race and culture. And so this is why, bear with me here, this is why when his loyalty to his nation comes into conflict with his loyalty to God and his word, what does he do? He chooses to support his national interests rather than obeying the word of God and taking that love to Nineveh, right? Jonah's problem is a problem of identity. And this is often our problem, okay? Let's just make up a person. Let's just call her Matilda. I don't think there's anybody named Matilda in the church, okay? So let's say Matilda. Here's Matilda. She's a lawyer. Uh, she's a Republican. She's a, 
and she could be a Democrat. I'm just using this as an example. She's a white American, and again, she could be you know, Brazilian, whatever. She's a Christian. This is just, this in her self-concept, first of all, the fact that she is a lawyer, she's worked really hard, she went to a great law school, she worked hard to make partner, her vocation is very important to her and is deeply central to her identity, okay? Also, her political views are very important to her and are very core to the way that she thinks about herself. She also thinks of herself an American, and she is a Christian, but she only goes to church occasionally. She doesn't really have a living faith. The fact that she's a Christian is more peripheral. It's not quite core to the way that she thinks about who she is. Now, because her vocation, her education, and her political views are so central to the way that she thinks about herself, guess what? That will determine the way that she interacts with others, and so she'll have a really hard time relating to people of different education, people of different classes, people of different political views. She will have a really hard time with empathy. She'll have a really hard time to relate. She'll have a hard time loving and accepting other people and showing grace to them even when she disagrees with them because this is so central to the way that she thinks about herself and the world. There's a professor at NYU. His name is Jonathan Haidt. And he wrote this really interesting article that I read this week called The Age of Outrage. And what he does is he argues that tribalism is deeply embedded in all human beings. We're almost like hardwired for it. And in order to form a we, a strong we, in order for that we to be strong, there has to be a they, right? And so our self-understanding is actually dependent on the people that we exclude. You always have to name someone as the enemy if you base your identity on something about yourself. So if you think of yourself as a hard worker, you'll look down on those that you see as lazy, right? If you see yourself as a good parent, you will judge the people that can't control your kids, can't control their kids. If you manage your money well, you'll look down on the people who are in debt. If you're a diehard hokey, you'll hate those people in Charlottesville, right? <laughs> Get what I'm saying? So you always have to name someone as the enemy. If something is about yourself, is at the core of your identity. But look what happens to Matilda. She meets Jesus, and she's born again. And suddenly, Matilda, at the center of her identity, is grace. That she now believes that she is a sinner who is saved by grace. And suddenly, her whole self-concept begins to change. She understands herself first and foremost at the very core of her being as someone who is undeserving of God's mercy, who is not superior to anyone else, and who is only loved because of Jesus and not because of her own abilities and not because of her achievements. And how does this change the way that she relates to other people? Oh my gosh, it changes everything because her, her pride begins to get chipped away. She becomes more humble. She begins to see other people, even people who she disagrees with, as being really no different from herself. The only thing that separates her from them is grace. And so it begins to dramatically change the way that she treats even her enemies because now the fact that she is a sinner saved by grace is at the very core of her being. So do you see why Jonah has such a hard time loving his enemies? because he hasn't yet been converted by grace. He has not yet had the grace of God come in to the very central core of who he is. So back to our question, why do we often fail to love our neighbor? Because we often base our identity on something other than the grace of God. So let's then look to our last question. How then can we get the power to love our neighbor? Well, let's keep going with the story. The sailors realize, wow, we are in a terrible predicament. Unlike our tribal gods, who are limited geography, you worship the God in heaven and earth, we're dead. So they freak out. And they say, what do we do? Verse 12, what does Jonah say? Pick me up and throw me into the sea. I know it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. 
Now, there's a ton of debate among commentators about why Jonah says this, okay? There's the generous view and the cynical view. The generous view is, is that Jonah is finally waking up to the presence of other people. His heart is finally beginning to change. And so he says, hey guys, this is my fault, throw me in. That's the generous view. The cynical view, which actually seems to be the majority view, is that Jonah doesn't care at all about the soldiers, about the sailors. He is just trying to get away from God. He is so intent on avoiding Nineveh that he would rather die than obey God and follow his will, right? So he says, throw me in. Which is it? Is it the generous view or the cynical view? Do you want to vote, class? Uh, let's not do that. Um, honestly, I think it's probably both. Because you know what? As human beings, we're a mixed bag. Um, I know on the one hand, um, human change happens very slowly. It is not likely that Jonah would have sudden, such a sudden transformation. Human transformation works more like a crock pot than a microwave. At least it does in my life. <laughs> I'm only about 15 seconds into the microwave cycle, my wife would tell me. Anyway, um, so, so on the one hand, it's not likely that he would change so dramatically. On the other hand, I do think we can see some very beginning cracks of light getting through that Jonah is beginning to notice other people other than himself. And so he says, throw me overboard. The soldiers don't do it immediately, still demonstrating their character that they will not kill this man, though he has brought the storm upon them. And so they finally realize they have to do it, and they cry out to God, ask for her forgiveness, ask for his forgiveness, and throw him into the sea, and no sooner does he hit the water, total calm. And the sailors see this amazing power of God. And so what happens? They become worshipers of Yahweh, and the irony only deepens that Jonah's anti-missionary activity and his attempt to run from the heathens results in the successful conversion of all the heathens on the boat. (laughs) He's the worst missionary ever. (laughs) And yet God keeps using him. This is such great hope for me, friends, and for you. But, but here's, this is such a funny book. I love it. But so here's the real lesson. Okay, bear with me here. Even though Jonah's motives are surely mixed, in the end, he truly does give himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for these sailors. He really does say in the end, look guys, you should not be dying for me. I'm the one who needs to be dying for you. And regardless of really what's going on in his head, we know that in this, Jonah is a pointer to Jesus Christ, whose own substitutionary sacrifice for us is the key to how we love our neighbors. In Matthew 12, verse 39, the people ask Jesus for a sign, and Jesus says, none will be given to it, but the sign of Jonah, for one greater than Jonah is here. And what Jesus means is that just as Jonah was thrown in and sacrificed to save the sailors, now Jonah has come to sacrifice himself for us. Of course, Jonah, in some ways, is nothing like Jesus. Jonah is selfish. Jesus is selfless. Jonah is thrown in for his own sins. Jesus is thrown in for the sins of the world. Jonah only came close to death. Jesus is actually put to death, laid in the grave, suffering the, the ocean of the judgment of sin for humanity. And yet, what is the same? Substitutionary sacrifice. One man for others. And I love what the French philosopher Jacques Ellul says. He says, what counts is that this story is in reality the precise intimation of an infinitely vaster story and one which concerns us directly. What Jonah could not do, but his actions announce, is done by Jesus Christ, who accepts total condemnation for us. Jesus is the ultimate Jonah, who has come to give his life as a ransom for many. He, he, He came down, though he was 
detached in the life of the Holy Trinity. He came down to get in our boat. He shared our sorrows and our pain. He was thrown in to die for us, his enemies, not when we were asking for it, but when we were running away. He swallowed up the storm of God's judgment for us, all that we might be saved. And so when we come to the question, how can we get the power to love our neighbor? There's only one answer, friends, and that is the substitutionary love of Jesus. It's the only way. Because what happens to you when you are truly changed by Jesus and his substitutionary love, everything changes. First of all, you change. It begins to break down your pride. It humbles you. You begin to base your identity not on what you have done, but what Jesus has done for you. It begins to reshape your attitudes towards other people. You begin to see that all people are equally lost, unable to save themselves. All people are equally possible to be saved through the grace of Jesus. And so when you meet somebody that's really different from you, another religion or another moral system or background, you treat them with respect and love because you know that the only thing that separates you from them is the grace of God. And it begins to change the way you live. You find yourself wanting to live more and more like Jesus, living a cross-shaped life, a cruciform life, giving yourself away, even for your enemies. Because why? Because you were his enemy when he gave himself away for you. The only thing that empowers our neighbor love is the substitutionary love of Jesus. A few years ago, a Dutch filmmaker was killed in the Netherlands by Muslim radicals. And the aftermath was really violent, especially for the Netherlands. Um, many mosques were burned uh, and attacked, and even an Islamic school uh, was bombed. And Netherlands was in turmoil, so unlike their peaceful society, and a pastor named Reverend Kees Sabrandi, who was a very conservative Reformed Christian, decided to do something. And so he walked to his neighborhood mosque, and he knocked on the door, and to the shock of the Muslims who were huddled inside, he told them that he would like to stand guard in the, around the mosque, at the mosque's door, every night until the attack stopped. And he did. And in the weeks that followed, he called on other churches and other pastors in the area to do the same, and they did, circling and guarding all the mosques in the area for more than three months. And the media, of course, was intrigued. And one reporter came to interview Reverend Keyes, and they, he asked him, why did you do this? Did you have some close relationship with a Muslim friend? And he said, no, I know no Muslims. And he said, well, are you moved by this liberal vision of the multi-religious, multicultural society? He said, no, I don't like that vision. <laughs> he said, well, why did you do this? He said, Jesus, Jesus commanded me to love. Love my neighbor, even my enemy. And that's what God's grace does. It just disrupts. Oh my goodness, it disrupts. It disrupts our lives. It disrupts our worldview. It disrupts the way we see our enemies. Jesus says, those who have received the radical grace of Jesus are now called to show that grace to others when we, yet God's enemies, we're saved. How much more are we called to do that for others? So dream with me a little bit, church. What would happen if we, the people of God, the people who know Jesus, what would happen if we were so changed by the substitutionary love of God in Jesus, so moved by the one who gave himself for us and for the life of the world, that we began to love 
and give ourselves away to everyone in our boat with the same kind of self-sacrificial love that Jesus has given to us? What would happen? Well, Jesus told us what would happen. He said, they will see your good deeds and glorify my Father in heaven. And so may the world know, may the world know that Jesus is Lord. May the world know that Jesus is the better Jonah, the one who has come to give himself for the life of the world. And may we, the church, live in such a way that through us and through our works of love, the world would see that Jesus is the one who they've been waiting for. May that be so. May it be so. Let's pray. We do pray, oh God, that you would waken us, waken us, your people, all around the world. Forgive us for the ways that we have often gone to sleep below deck and have ignored or been so preoccupied with ourselves that we have not seen the pains and the sorrows of those in the boat with us. So wherever we are, whoever we're with, whatever we find, wherever we live, whatever neighborhood we're in, whatever school we're in, wherever we find ourselves, may we see and know that you have put us there for the sake of others in the boat. And may we love Would you plant the grace of Jesus so deeply at the core of our identity that there would be no hindrances to the way that we love our neighbor, even our enemy. And then through us, may Jesus be known. We pray in his name. Amen.